Hello, and welcome to PW's LitCast, a podcast from Publishers Weekly. I'm Emma Winner at Publishers Weekly, and today I'm speaking with Parker J. Palmer, whose book, On the Brink of Everything, is being published by Barrett Kohler Publishers, the sponsor of today's LitCast. Hello, Parker. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Emma. Thanks for having me. Your book, On the Brink of Everything, is about aging and finding meaning, but it's also very much a book about writing. How did writing and aging come together for you? Well, I think writing has always been my way of processing my own life experience. Um, You know, a sort of therapy that needs no appointment and requires no fee. So by writing, I'm able to find out more about what's going on inside of me. And of course, with aging uh, come a lot of inner life questions. So writing the book, um, which is a uh, a highly edited uh, uh, collection of shorter pieces that I've done, including some of my own poetry over the last six or eight years, um, was really an ongoing way of trying to understand the process of aging as I aged. I see. And you're a longtime writer. You have written nine books previously. Did your readers play a role in the genesis of this book about aging? Yeah, I think very much so. Um, there, I'm, I'm a very lucky writer in that uh, through nine books, uh, and I think through this one as well, I've gathered an audience of readers that's uh, pretty sizable and pretty diverse. Um, all of my books are still in print, uh, from the first one in 1979 to, uh, to the most recent one in 2011. And um, I get a lot of reader feedback on a lot of different uh, things. I also run a Facebook author page where uh, people chime in about issues of uh, importance to them that I've touched on in my writing. So the readers very much shaped um, this book. In fact, the dedication of the book is is twofold. It's first of all to my wonderful longtime editor Cheryl Fullerton, who uh, really helped me put this book together and get get a vision for it. And the second is to my readers, young, old, and in between, uh, who have uh, with with whom and through whom I've learned so much over the years. And were you receiving feedback on? getting older and and people struggling with staying involved, is that what inspired the book? Yeah, I think that was part of it, although um, when I write, I I never know who I'm writing for. Um, My experience over many years of writing has been that my books end up in the hands of many people whom I could not have predicted uh, would would like the book, would want to get engaged with the book. and, and so, while I've never known exactly who I'm writing for, um, except whoever it is that picks up the book and reads it, um, I've always tried to be as clear as possible about where I'm writing from or what I'm writing from. And the answer to that has always been um, the deepest places within myself that I can reach. Uh, I figure that if I write from those deeper places, um, I have a chance, at least, of, of reaching those deeper places in other people. I think some people think of writing as a, as a process of uh, getting a bunch of ideas in your head and then downloading them to a Microsoft Word 
file or a yellow pad or whatever. That's never been the way it's it's been for me. For me, writing has been a process of discovery about what's going on in, inside of me, um, largely motivated by the fact that I think I was born baffled, um, sort of, you know, came out of the womb, they, they slapped me, I, I screamed and looked around and said, what's, what's this all about? <laughs> and, uh, I've sort of been asking that question ever since. That's, that's really, I think, bafflement, I think, is probably my primary gift as a writer. That's great. And you write about, you use the phrase in the book, living at altitude. Can you explain what that is and why it's so dangerous? Yeah, um, as you know, uh, one of the essays in the book, and, and I, I refer to this several times in the book, has to do with my own experience over the years of clinical depression. I've made three deep dives into that uh, murky, murky territory. And um, I think one of the takeaways I learned uh, from that experience, that very hard experience, which one wishes on no one, including oneself, but uh, once you've had it, if you're lucky enough to survive it, then you, you know, you try to make meaning from it, as we all do with hard experiences. And for me, one of the takeaways was that um, I was, I was, uh, I was hitting the ground hard because I was living at altitude. And by that, I mean, I was living at altitude in my ego. I was living at altitude in my intellect. Um, I was living at altitude in my uh, sense of oughts. Um, and as long as, as, as I was living up there, whenever I tripped and fell, which we all do all the time, I had a long way to fall. Uh, you hit the ground pretty hard when you're living at altitude. And so one of my learnings uh, from these experiences of depression is to try to stay on the ground as much as possible, uh, to keep solid ground under my feet, which means, uh, you know, working with the ego uh, to try to keep it under control, uh, not over-intellectualizing or overthinking things, although I, uh, thinking, I believe, is very important. In fact, I believe these days it's more and more important than ever. Um, and realizing that, that the oughts um, of your life may be different from the oughts of a, another person's life, uh, depending very much on your gifts, your opportunities, and where it is you're planted in life's larger ecosystem. So these, this notion that our spiritual lives have not so much to do with going up, up, and away, uh, as they're often portrayed, but rather down, down, and down, um, until we sort of hit the living water that, uh, that, as it were, feeds all the wells. I think that's where we find um, commonality with each other, and I think that's where we find um, our own deepest nourishment. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the commonality with others. The book prescribes um, reaching out, especially for older people, to reach out to the young, to stay involved. How can someone continue to reach out and engage with the young? What's, what's one way someone could reach out to the community around them? Well, I think, that, you know, I think the first thing is to get past a barrier that a lot of old people feel. Um, 
they they feel they feel the need to sort of hunker down um, and you know to to go off to a private place as the elephants do to die and you know my one of my mottos in the book is old is just another word for nothing left to lose so get out there and try some creative risks take some creative risks on behalf of the common good in practical terms I just think it's important to realize that there are younger people all over the place who are yearning for an older person to take an interest in them, a genuine interest. I, I'm afraid that sometimes means in the minds of older people, oh, they want my advice. No, they don't. Um, what they want is a listening ear. What they want is someone who says, I take you seriously and, I'm, uh, and, I, and I want to learn more about the world you inhabit and the questions you're holding. And the advice I have to give you at age 79 or 80 um, is probably not very useful when you're in, in your 20s in, an, in a culture quite different than the one I grew up in. But what I can help you with is, uh, to use a phrase from a writer named Nell Morton, uh, I, can, I can help hear you into speech deeper and deeper speech. Um, so simply listening to people and, and learning to ask those good, honest, open questions um, about what they're trying to say to help them hear the words behind the words, the message behind the message, the question behind the question, that's, that's something that a lot of older people have an opportunity to do. They're, they have neighbors with younger kids. They have younger kids in their own families. Um, and my experience, I, I'm lucky because 25 years ago I established a nonprofit called the Center for Courage and Renewal. Um, and through that organization, I've been able, for example, over the last eight years, to do a series of retreats with young leaders and activists who are very engaged with the world and, and from whom I've learned just an enormous amount. So, you know, it's come fairly easily to me in my in my longtime role as a teacher of, of adults and, and uh, younger adults to have a chance to hang out with the young. And I've been very intentional about it. Yeah. Um, so I think, this, I think that intentionality and just opening your eyes and looking around and, and seeing, you know, I, I, I don't have to travel a thousand miles to do this. The, mm -hmm. the young people are here at hand. And how might someone of retirement age continue to follow their vocation? I think it depends a lot on um, what we mean by vocation. If we're thinking about the job at which we've been employed for the last 30 or 40 years or 10 or 20 years, where we no longer go to that office and hang out with those particular people, um, then I think we're walking down a dead-end road. But if we, um, if we try to understand, and, and this is something I think we should try to understand early on in life, what's the, what's the driver beneath the work that we do? What's the true passion? What's, what's the interest? What's the gift? Then I think we can find new ways to express that passion, that interest, and that gift, even if we're no longer employed in a workplace. Uh, in the book, I use my grandfather as a, as an example, um, one of one of my heroes. Oh, Grandpa was 
a machine tool operator. He made parts for John Deere tractors. And when he was re retired by the company at age 65, as used to happen in the in the in the bad old days, um, he um, he missed the shop and he missed the equipment that he used and he missed his colleagues. But he understood that his real passion was not just running a machine tool uh, crafter or working on tractor parts. His real passion was making things from raw material. And so he proceeded to do that for the rest of his life. And sitting right next to me here in my office as I speak to you are two rather amazing objects. He took to carving peach pits. And if you've ever tried to work with a peach pit, you know it's a very hard material. But he, he carved this beautiful little monkey that, uh, with a curled tail around it over, up over its head and, and a beautiful little may basket from pe large peach pits. And I have them sitting here as a reminder that his vocation didn't end when his job ended his calling didn't end when his job ended, and mine doesn't need to either. Oh, I see. Okay. And throughout the book, you acknowledge what you call your safety net in terms of race, gender, and class privilege. And you even call yourself a white, straight, financially secure male. Um, how do you maintain such a self-awareness, and, and why is it so important to do that? Well, I think in this day and time, um, it's very important for white people to get out of the defensive posture that so many are in as we approach the middle of this century when all the reliable forecasts say that this country will become uh, a predominantly, uh, a population predominantly of people of color, which for me is a very exciting prospect because for me diversity always means more chances at creativity if people like me don't freeze in fear around that and cling tightly to power and, and privilege. Um, it's, uh, to me it's, a, it, it's, it's very important for me and I believe other white people to maintain an awareness of the perspective from which we look at things. And we have been looking at things from the catbird seat. And so many white folks get nervous and defensive and fearful and angry when it looks like the, we're going to be ousted from the catbird seat. I, I do think that that is pretty clearly, that, that kind of fear and anger is pretty clearly driving a lot of American politics these days and creating a lot of appalling stuff, uh, a kind of level of public cruelty that I think most Americans don't want to see. Uh, and so coming to terms not only with white privilege but with white supremacy I think is a very important thing for people like me. Um, I uh, have recently written and in fact spoke to a a multiracial conference in New York City um, uh, a few weeks ago about about the fact that it's a cop-out for white people not only to deny that they have white privilege but to deny or, or to, to limit the concept of white supremacy to people who wear hoods and burn crosses. Um, 
I acknowledged in this piece of writing and speaking that I've had my own form of white supremacy over the years, and I thought I think a lot of white people do. In my case, it took uh, the quote benign form of imagining that that white was normative, that this was kind of the normal way, my culture, my ways of seeing the world and doing things were normal, while other cultures were strange or exotic uh, and sometimes scary. Uh, but when you look at some of the simplest statistics about the world population and about the U.S. population, you realize how arrogant that assumption is, that white is normative. So I, I work on this inwardly and I write about it in order to find myself in a place in the world where I can appreciate diversity and I can embrace it for its creative possibilities and I can understand that while I'm welcome to put my piece of the puzzle in place, I am not welcome to try to set the rules of the game um, or to mastermind it in, in some way. I simply think that's a critical sort of personal political connection in our times and so I wrote about it in this in this book. I think I'll just conclude my answer to that question by saying that I think elders these days sort of uh, split into into two categories. There's one category of people who seem to get more fearful as they get old uh, who hunker down and then politically support all kinds of things that uh, put a wall around them, uh, or or they imagine put a wall around them. In fact, walls just don't work, and I hope that's a message that more Americans will get soon. But then there's another group of elders who believe with me that old is just another word for nothing left to lose, so get out there and take some risks for the common good. And um, I, I'm hoping that uh, this book will help reinforce that message and maybe bring a few folks um, over to that way of looking at things. I think that was beautifully stated and it brings me to my next question which you may have already addressed. And what is the most important thing you want readers to take away from this book? Hmm. Well, it's um, again, I, I guess I have to say that um, each reader will find his or her own meaning in this book and whatever that meaning is um, that's what they'll take away and I'll be glad for that. I have had people come up to me over the years especially around um, the writing I've done about depression and say thank you so much for writing this book it saved my life and I I've always responded well I'm very grateful for for your comment but please understand I did not save your life you saved your life um, I'm glad I put certain words on paper in which you found meaning but you were the one who made actionable meaning out of those words and so that credit is yours not mine I, th I think uh, I, I, one of my one of the readers of my manuscript wrote to me the other day and said something very interesting about the book, which I'm glad to say he loved, um, that I really hadn't put this way before. He said, I think the bottom line of 
the message that I received as an older person from this book is everything's going to be fine. <laughs> and uh, while that's a simplistic way of putting it, it does, it, it does speak to the, this whole question of fear that I'm afraid is part of the lives of, of so many older people. Um, and and I, I guess I do believe that if we can relax into the notion that, you know, th things are working as things are working, uh, and then try to find our place in this complex puzzle of what's our best role in that, what's our most life-giving way to stand and speak and be in the midst of all of this, uh, then everything will be fine. <laughs> yeah, and, and just because life is nearing the end doesn't mean it's over. No, not not at all. Um, in fact, my my sense, Emma, is that um, the older I get and the more aware I'm compelled to be of my own mortality, the more I appreciate the the gifts of life. I think I probably spent three or four minutes this morning just standing, staring out a window on the second floor of my home at the very gentle. Uh, sunrise that was happening on, on the far horizon um, at 5 a.m. here in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, that's something I would not have done uh, 10, 20 years ago. I would have been in great haste to get down to my home office and boot up my computer and, and get to work. Uh, but now I think I'm just much more appreciative of the gift of life, and I think I'm in a better position to use it well um, at every moment when I can maintain that awareness of and that gratitude. And and so my last question for you is, how are you planning on celebrating your 80th birthday? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's I'm I'm hoping that a lot of chocolate will be involved. That's my that's my main hope. Uh, it's a great question. I hadn't really thought much about it. When is it? Is it soon? It's it's actually I'm I'm two months past my 79th birthday, so I've got planning time, right? <laughs> <laughs> but you know it's going to fly by. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely true. It does, it does for all of us, I think. But uh, if I could, you know, if I if I had my druthers, it's in February, so this this is an impossible plan, but. One of my favorite places on the face of the earth, where my wife and I go at the end of every summer for several weeks, is the Boundary Waters of northern Minnesota, which is a, a million acres of wilderness on the Minnesota-Ontario uh, uh, border. And um, just immersing myself in that wilderness and uh, learning how much I love this this landscape, this this earth uh, in its most pristine form, the, the very earth to which my atoms will return and uh, in which they will be recycled all the way back to those stars that, that gave birth to them in the first place. Um, I, I just, I love being there and I guess if I had my druthers, it, my birthday, my 80th birthday would involve the boundary waters of northern Minnesota and a lot of chocolate. That's perfect. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us, Parker. And also thank you to the audience for listening. Join us again for the next LitCast. <laughs>